All right, all right. That is uh, Britton Latham. He and his wife Jessica are uh, sponsors of ours for Church of the Oaks there in Tuscaloosa. Man, God is doing an amazing work uh, in that church. As you can see, we like to keep that in front of you because he is one of our missions partners through our Give to Go missions giving uh, that we do year round. It goes goes through year round through the different pledges uh, and those sorts of things. Uh, but that is one of them. Uh, they are Judea. Dia Missions partner. And so we have our local, we have our Judea, we have our Samaria, which is the favorite city. And then we are currently now working on our international. We've got who that is. Uh, we are establishing some things and some relationship with them. And we are planning a trip with them uh, actually in a couple years. So uh, we're excited about that coming down. But that doesn't happen without your generosity and giving over and beyond. What is your tithe to the area of missions? as we partner uh, with them. So we appreciate that. We, we're excited about what God is doing. I will say uh, it really helps to follow these folks on social media. If you want to know what God is doing, uh, Britton Latham and uh, Joseph Gibbons, man, are great follows. If you're not following Neighborhood Bridges, you're missing out because they are giving uh, opportunities for you to give and opportunities for you to uh, share kindness with, uh, with people in the community. And so uh, you're missing out entirely on that uh, if you're not giving in that way or if you're not a part of it in that way. But uh, be sure to check them out on social media. They are, both of them are better follows on Instagram. I don't do Instagram because I'm old, but they also have Facebook that they will occasionally throw little nuggets our way, all right, for all of us old folks, okay? Uh, I'm just kidding. All right, I'm too young to feel old. All right, uh, but man, we are glad that you're here. Thank you for worshiping with us. We are continuing our uh, Families Count series. This is our third message in the Families Count series. Uh, we are also letting you know more about the ministry that we are going to be a part of entitled Families Count, uh, that through our Jerusalem partnership, we are going to be working with families. We Last week, we shared uh, kind of the overview of the entire entire ministry that uh, we're working with families, uh, birth families that have been in crisis, that maybe DHR has stepped in and, and removed children and those sorts of things. We are going to be part of the protective system to help those families hopefully work toward reunification. Uh, that's the reason they're in foster care is because they are looking to be reunified with their children. Uh, and so we're going to be able to be a ministry to people. We're not just providing support. We're not just helping out because this is a need. Uh, because ultimately, we want to speak the gospel to them. We're not just a charitable organization that wants to make people feel better. Man, we want to share the gospel with them. And this is our foot in the door to have that opportunity to have six weeks of conversations with them about who they are, who God has designed them to be, how God, how man has broken and tarnished the image of God, how he has provided a way for us to be made right through the relationship with Jesus Christ and how we can have life eternal, restored and redeemed in our new hope in him. And so we get an opportunity to share that with them. Uh, it's important enough that we are actually going through the curriculum in our home groups in an abbreviated format. So we're studying some of these tenets. Hopefully you had discussions in your home groups about some of those very things. And uh, I know that God moved in our home group. It was a really engaging, awesome conversation. Uh, we were writing on a big uh, whiteboard and have, had discussion going on. It was a really, really great opportunity for us. And so get in involved in those home groups because this is a combo series. What I, you're hearing from me, we are breaking down and unpacking in our, our home groups throughout the weeks. And so we want you to be a part of that. And But what I wanted to tell you about Families Count, I want to kind of give you the nuts and bolts of what that's going to look like. So at its core, Families Count is a six-week parenting class that meets on, we'll meet on this campus uh, and we will be uh, inviting families that are apart looking to check things off of their list in order to gain access to their children again, in order to get back and be able to uh, 
be rehomed with their children. And so we're going to be offering this six weeks parenting class. It's given as a choice that they can choose from, from all the other, from the other parenting classes and things like that, that they would want to choose from. Ours will be free. We're going to be providing a meal and even possibly providing transportation for some of these people that don't have reliable transportation to get them to these places. We're going to be trying to work on that as well. And so we'll be talking about some of the the roles that we're going to need people to play in the future. But the whole goal is not to give them six weeks of parenting and psychological things. I know there are aspects of that in the training because it has to be, right? In order for it to be implemented you know, legally, there, there has to be some things that we have to do. But the goal, man, is to get the gospel to them. And we get to do that in a very explicit way in those classes. And then we get to build relationships. Why do we do meal? Why do we do transportation? So we can talk to them about Jesus and build relationships. At the end of the six weeks class, they're given an option. If they would like to continue with a mentor, a mentor couple that can mentor them and help them and, and, and support them and pray for them and communicate with them, there's parameters to all of that and all those details are going to be worked out and going to be talked about and talked through. I know I'm not giving you all the details now and that's okay, all right? Be okay with that because though that information will be coming, but that's what we're doing is building relationship bridges with the lost. And so I'm passionate about that. Uh, I, I'm really excited about this ministry. It's going to be messy, but man, it is going to be meaningful, and I can't wait for us to have the opportunity uh, to do that. But we're continuing that series, and so today as we continue our family's count, before we go any further, I want us to do a little exercise, all right? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get out your phones, uh, and I want you to open up your cameras. You might have to get closer if you need to, but I want you to scan this QR code. It is going to take you to a live poll that we are about to poll the audience. Live results here, five questions that I want to ask to see where we are on this on an idea of generational Curses. This idea of the uh, transgressions of the father, the iniquity of the father being passed down to future generations. Uh, if, you, if, if you're not close enough, you can get closer and take a picture. That's totally fine. Um, or you can follow that link. You can just type it in on your browser and it'll take you there as well. So this is a live result poll. Uh, Jeremiah did it and it was so cool. And I was like, I want to do this on a Sunday morning, but I was nervous. And so we'll see if it worked out. Worked out second service. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but you know, us old folks, we just don't know how to, you know, work technology like all these young guys, all right? All right, here we go. Y'all got, everybody got it? Awesome, we got some folks in. Good, 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 good. All right, I'm gonna ask some questions. You respond, and those uh, results will be tallied in the form of percentages. It's anonymous, all right? So no worries about how you respond, okay? Here we go, true or false? I believe that an individual's family of origin is among the leading determinations of his or her behavior. True or false? I believe that an individual's family of origin, their birth family, the family they grew up in, their mom and them, uh, is among the leading determinations of his or her behavior. Do you feel like that is the case? All right, tabulating the answers. And... 78.3% people in this room believe that it is. 21.7, that equals to be 100%, by the way, uh, say that it is false, okay? Uh, the in individual's family of origin is among the leading determination of his or her behavior, uh, statistically at least, all right? Secondly, true or false, I find myself struggling with some of the same sins as my parents. True or false? Some of the same things my family struggled with, I, my parents struggled with, I struggle with. True or false? Is that true of you? Not generally, is that true of you? All right, 68.9% said that is true. 31.1% say that it is false. All right, question number three. I believe that my children will be more prone to give in to the same specific temptations in which I or my spouse struggle. Oh, Lord, that's resounding right there. All right. Oh, 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 oh. 
making a late comeback, late comeback, Cinderella. All right, uh, sorry, the pumpkin has turned. Uh, 79.2% said that it is true that my family will be more prone to give in to temptation, same specific temptations in which I or my spouse struggle. Uh, and then 20.8% believe that it is false. All right, this is the last question, and this is where we're going to jump off and into God's word. Uh, this is a sliding scale question. So as you see on your thing, there are many, many, many options. But the question is, or the statement is, I buy in to the idea of generational curses. I buy into the idea of generational... Oh! The gene- I'm sorry, I messed up. It's my bad. I believe there's a genetic aspect to this, and y'all are already going. Uh, the genetic aspect. Sorry, I forgot about that one. There's a genetic aspect in which I or the future generations will struggle. Will struggle. Okay, all right. This one's a little more. All right, so 54% believe that is false, all right? And then 45% believe that it is true. Now, the last question is a sliding scale. A sliding scale of those options given from absolutely to no, no way, I buy into the idea of generational curses. I buy into the idea of generational curses. Oh, here we go. I don't know what green is, but it's in the lead. There we go. Okay. Tabulating responses. All right, I buy into the idea of generational curses. Uh, the most hardline answers was number was twelve percent, hook, line, and sinker. I absolutely believe in it, no doubt in my mind. Generational curses are a thing. The least, the other uh, option was absolutely not. Are you crazy, right? The polar opposite of that. Eight percent of you uh, feel that way. Uh, the other two, other three are somewhere in the middle, right? You have nope, I don't believe in generational curses, convince me otherwise. You have yep, I can be pers- but I can be persuaded. But you also have, see, see, and y'all church folks, that, this is church folks. By the way, blue is church folks. Because they know that the pastor's got some angle and so they general act barred it, right? It's a trap, right? That's what you're doing. All right, I understand, that's fine. You played the middle ground. Thanks for being real political on me, uh, but you played the middle ground. All right, so the leading, the leading there is no, I don't believe in it, but it convinced me otherwise. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, and I'll just tell you, man, this idea of generational curses, man, it does get deep. Uh, It's it's very important, though, that we understand because we can live with our head in the sand about things that are very clear in God's word if we're not careful to do our due diligence in studying what God's word says about sin in our life. Generational curses is about sin. It's issue related to sin. Man, I am a overeater from four generations back. I ate too much. My daddy ate too much. My granddaddy ate too much. They lived to be 134. Tell me I'm not, you know, I'm fine, right? We do this a lot. Right? Well, you know, he's like his, you know, he's like his mom or his dad. She's like your mom or her dad. You know, they, they're, they're this way, so I just knew they were going to be this way. We associate people with a good old boy application to theology. We, we attribute a lot of what some people do to the generations that were before them. What I want to share with us today, the title of my message is that my family can be different. My family can be different. And so for us to understand the idea of generational sin, we need a context for it. So number one is a context for generational sin. Where does this come from? Why why is this a thing? Why do we talk about this? Well, it's biblical, right? It's in the Bible. So if it's in the Bible, we probably should talk about it, right? Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Listen to what it says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now, let me tell you, before we go any further, Moses is receiving the second copy of God's law from God. What happened to the first copy? 
Moses broke it, right? The people of Israel came down. They had already broken God's law. And Moses was like, well, we guess we don't need this. Shattered. This is prophetic as much as it anything, more than an emotional response or anything else. Moses was just doing what we would do for the rest of human existence. We would break God's law. Moses very physically broke it, but as a metaphor, I mean, it's, it's prophetic throughout the generations. God, God's people didn't just sin with the golden calf. They continued to sin. They continued to blow it time and time again. By the way, you and I continue to blow it. We continue to break, break those tablets. But Moses is writing the second version, right? Draft number two goes back up to Sinai and he begins to write down God's law. But listen to this encounter with God. The Lord God passed before him and Proclaimed. This is Exodus 20 as well. He does the same thing. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third in the fourth generation. Father, this is your word. And because of that, it is not the word of man. The stakes are higher. It is your perfect word. Give us understanding. Lord, reveal yourself through your word, which is your intended purpose, through your love, through your law, through your, your writings is to reveal yourself. Reveal yourself to us. May we be faithful students of your word, and Lord, may we leave with the truth of it forever changed in Jesus' name. Amen. So the context of original, of, of generational sin comes from this passage. The sins of the fathers, the iniquity of the fathers visited specifically right in verse 7, that the visiting of the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and the fourth generation, right? This This is where this idea comes from. And as I read this, man, I immediately recoil at this idea of my kids being affected by this my sins in future generations. Like my kids, my grandkids, this is the recoil that it creates in our life. And by By the way, in some people's lives, in some families, it can be an absolute self-defeating prophecy, right? Like, because my family did this, the same sin is visited on me, and I'm going to struggle with it, and I'm going to deal with it, and it's going to be something that's going to be a problem for me, and it's going to be a problem for my kids, and so why even try? Because there's no point This passage is an echo of the same, almost the same exact wording in Exodus chapter 20. That are the main texts that drive this idea of generational curses. It became so pervasive in Jewish culture that we would arrive at John chapter 3, where Jesus and his disciples would encounter a man that was born blind. And they would ask, what'd they ask? Do you remember? Was it this man that sinned? Or was it his parents? That sin. This idea of generational curses that the consequences of my sin would follow into the sins of my children. And, and so they, they taught then that, and now the reason why they asked the question is there was a teaching that said that a baby, a child could sin even in the womb. Uh, and, so, and so that this child, did this child sin in his mama? Did he kick his mama too hard? I don't know how you sin in the womb, but that's what they said. That's what they taught. The, some of the rabbis taught. But did he sin or did his parents sin? But he was born blind. And so is this a consequence of an earlier generation? And so this was the way that they applied things. If there was something going on in somebody's life, the reason why it was going on is because of the sin of somebody, whether it's him or one of his kinfolk, his mom and him, right? And so, and so it's important that we understand that this is the way that they taught. This is the way that they applied it in a very one-to-one type way. But it's important for us to understand that our theology, our theology is the study of God, ology, study, theo, theos, God. The st- our, our understanding of God should not be built on a verse. Well, hang on, Alan, that's God's word. 
Hang with me. Our theology cannot be built on a verse. Why? Because a single verse can be taken out of context. A single verse can be manipulated to mean exactly what we want it to mean. It's where false theology actually comes from. Most false theology comes from a verse misapplied. I can tell you, I can find in God's word where it says there is no God. But in the greater context, it says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I can make God's word manipulated to mean whatever it means. So we can't build what we know about God on one verse. What we build, what we know about God, we build on the entire canon of his revealed word to us. So what does all 66 books say? What does God have to say on this idea of generational curses? There's more verses that we've got to consider than just Exodus chapter 20 in Exodus chapter 34. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Same guy, Moses, he's telling the people of Israel before he leaves, this is how things need to go. This is how God examines the law and the law code. You could also look, by the way, at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, amongst others. There's plenty of other passages, four or five other passages that you could look at to study, to see what God is trying, what, what God is really trying to communicate to this idea of generational curses. Listen to what he says in verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children. Okay, well, that's kind of the reverse of generational curses, right? Like, fathers should not be put to death because of the actions of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So what does this tell us about generational curses? Given these two texts, a correct interpretation to the iniquity of the fathers upon the, upon the children would require the children's disobedience as well. We see nowhere in Scripture or in Israel of a guiltless person ever being punished. When God levies punishment, it is because the person that is being judged was wrong for the sin that they committed. All right? There is no such thing as an innocent person, an innocent bystander being, he, they were collateral damage in the judgment of God. Now, what does that mean? That means for us that the idea of the visiting of iniquity of the fathers Onto the son cannot mean that the sons are have to sin like the father has sinned. What it means is there is some tie in the family, in the relationship between father and children, where the son or the daughter could be tempted in the same way. But in order for there to be judgment, that child has to be a sinner. That child has to commit those sins. And it's their pagan worship. It's their choice to rebel. It's their own. And so, yes, there is a sense in which generational curses, consequences, and effects of those consequences can ripple into other generations. But it does not mean that you are locked into a cycle where because your family sinned, right? I'm I don't know why I'm thinking of holes, but the dirty, rotten, great great, 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 big still and grandpa or whatever, right? Like that's not passed down. The whole family line isn't guilty of that sin because of the sin of great, great, great grandpa, right? Each individual uh, generation is responsible before God for their actions, and their actions will result in blessing or punishment. Their response of obedience will be met with blessing and their response of disobedience will be met with judgment. This is what he's saying, but there is a sense in which, right, things do get passed down. This idea of proneness to sin does get passed down. Notice what he says in verse 34, in, in, in Exodus 34. What did he say in verse 7? God will by no means clear 
the guilty. It is the guilty person that God will not clear, right? And so what does that mean? Every generation incurs guilt for themselves. So guilt is not, is not passed down until that, that there is sin, right? And, but with the presence of sin comes the incurrence of guilt, right? And so he will by no means uh, clear the guilty. So each generation that chooses the way of their fathers and follows after pagan gods or does things in disobedience to God, they will be punished as their fathers. And typically it has a lineage approach. There is a trend of it tracking from families, right? It's how whole cultures are built around pagan worship. It's families for generations worshiping a certain style in a certain way, but each generation incurs guilt for themselves. But I would remind you of this because this is important in the idea of generational curses. To read Exodus 34, 6 through 7 and only see the curses is to miss the goodness of God. I mean, sure, God spends half a verse talking about not clearing the guilty and visiting the sins of the Father, but look what he says before that. What is also in the character of God on this issue that we cannot miss? We cannot miss in the area of generational sin. We cannot miss God's goodness. We, we, he's, he's not this guy, this, you know, Man upstairs who's got a lightning bolt that's just ready to fry us at a moment's notice. He's not that type of God. He is a good God, right? What does he say? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He's keeping steadfast love for generations. We just called on a God who was the same God back then that he is today. Why do we do that? We do it on the basis of generational love. Not just condemnation. But God is a holy God. So to provide a little more insight on this, let's look at a case for generational sin. 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33 gives us a case of a family who were, they were kings of the Davidic line that would eventually lead to Jesus, but they were kings in Judah. The first that we find is Manasseh. This is also found in 2 Kings, these same names, these same stories. The first is a man named Manasseh. Manasseh was the king. He was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 45, 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people. So this was Manasseh. He was a sinner. Now his father, by the way, was Hezekiah. He was considered wild, widely as a good king. Now in the last 15 years when Manasseh was actually born, he had gotten proud and prideful and gotten comfortable and he did fall into some sin. But Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah decided that he would do what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations. Instead of going after the God of his people, he went after the God of the Canaanites. And he began to serve them and live for them. And he began to worship pagan gods. He began to offer his children as sacrifices. Um, he followed the way of the Canaanites. In fact, in verse 9, look at 2 Chronicles 33, 9. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations of the Lord that had destroyed before the people of Israel. He, there was more evil being done in Judah under the reign of Manasseh than there was evil when Jericho and the Canaanites were around. There was more evil going on with God's people living in the promised land than there was when the, Canaan, the pagan Canaanites were living in the promised land. It's crazy. 
Manasseh would repent eventually. The Bible says that he was taken captive by hooks from the Assyrians. I don't know, that sounds like a really painful captivity, like someone taking me away with hooks. Um, but I've gotten hooks stuck in my finger before, not, not pleasant, right? I can't imagine that, but he repents and God restores him. But listen to his son, Amon. Second Chronicles 33, verse 21. Amon was 22 years old when he began to reign. This is Manasseh's son. And he reigned for two years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done. What is this? Generational, right? He did what his father, he saw his daddy doing, right? Uh, Amon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh, his father, had made, and he served them. The same ones that Manasseh had, Amon brought out and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Amon incurred guilt more and more. And his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. We look at that and generational cursed advocates say, there you go, right? The sin of the father is the sin of the son. And in this case, it absolutely is, right? That there are things, there are, there are consequences for our sins that do have reverberations in generations to come. There are things like the example that we leave. Generational sin is real in the sense that sin is, number one, observed. According to studies, the biggest influence in the life of children is still their parents. It still is. Until they reach the age of majority, their life is most influenced by their parents. And when they have a godly example to follow, there is an observance that they get to witness of what real relationship with Christ looks like and it reverberates in that next generation through the example that they leave. In the same way, a negative example that is left, it is observed by the kids and therefore it is made more easy for them to fall into the same temptations. I'm just following the example of my dad. Alcoholism has been in our family for generations and I'm just continuing the trend of abusing alcohol, right? And we almost shift the blame of our inactions because of this, but it is real in the fact that it's observed through our example. It's made accessible. You know, he said that he followed, he chose not to follow God. He chose to follow the ways of his daddy as Manasseh had, but it also said, where did he get the things to follow these pagan gods? He got them from his daddy. So he went to the places where his daddy had built these pagan things. He pulled them out of storage and he started worshiping them. You would be amazed how many men I have talked to that said the reason why they currently struggle with lust and addiction that they do today is because they gained access from an earlier generation. They saw it in their dad's possession. They saw it under Paul Paul's bed, they gained access to it. And so there is a sense in which generational sin is real and that accessibility becomes an issue. And listen, there's even convincing studies that show that genetics have a role to play. A Hebrews 12 talks about the sin that easily besets us. And I believe the interpretation of that is I don't struggle with all sin. Like there's not all, all, all sin does not appeal to me. But there is a sin or a group of sin, a cluster of sin that I really am tempted more than most people with, right? There is a sin that easily besets me, easily entraps me, easily ensnares me. I don't know what your sin is, but chances are hearing me say it, something in your mind of things that are very easy for you to be prone to follow into. 
That doesn't mean that you do it. It doesn't mean you always act on it. But there is temp- certain temptation that is more appealing to you than others. And so I do believe that there is a genetic aspect. Studies have been shown that we don't just pass DNA to our kids, we pass information to our kids. We pass a, a, a way of living. I pass a personality to my son. Man, you don't got to look any further than Hudson Ostrisky to see that I pass genetic information to my kids, right? Like, they, they, he acts the same way that I act, right? He's hilarious and he's funny, but he is a jerk sometimes, right? He didn't just get that from my DNA and RNA or whatever else, all the, you know, genetic people can, you know, correct me later. He got that from information. He got that from cues of who I am affect how his personality is. And I do believe that sometimes we can get a besetting sin from our parents. And so I believe it can be tracked genetically to a certain extent as well. But I want to insert in this case study a man named Josiah. Josiah is found in 2 Chronicles 34, beginning in verse 1. Josiah had in his genetics pagan worship of his daddy and Paul. But Josiah did something different. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. I cannot imagine the childhood that Josiah had before the age of eight. The things that Amon, his father, subjected him to, that he saw, that he witnessed. But at eight years old, you want to talk about a backbone, at eight years old, Josiah decided that he would do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of David, his father. Not Manasseh, not Amon, but his father, David And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Do you know what this tells us? I don't care what Papa or great Papa or dad has done or subjected you to. Mom, grandma, in this generation, you can choose to follow the Lord. Your family can be different. And for you to lean on anything other than your responsibility to be the man or the woman that God has called you to be is simply a crutch and cowardice. Because you are deceiving yourself from the truth that is you are responsible to God for your actions. Well, how do I know that? Leviticus tells us. Verse 26, chapter 26, verse 40 through 42, it's on the screen. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they've committed against me and also walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. Listen, if they will renounce what they're doing, if they'll renounce this whole generational thing of their sin in our life, if they will renounce that, which has caused me to act in... uh, in reproach has caused me to judge, has caused me to punish. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. What's he saying? If a generation, a single generation will quit being dumb for one second and they will look back to me, then I will forgive. Why? Because I'm not just a God that visits the sin, the iniquity of fathers on the sons for thousands of generations. But I am a God who has reserved steadfast love and abounding grace for all who would come to me. All who would receive. All who would respond in obedience. But church, this teaching 
is incomplete if it stays in the Old Testament. Because that's what Josiah did. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps and he paid attention to what the Lord said. He found God's law that was like hidden away in a palace somewhere or in the, in the temple somewhere, like behind a whole bunch of stuff. And this guy came in and read it and he started tearing his clothes. He's like, oh my gosh, we've forgotten all of this. And he did, he did right. He got right. He fixed it in his generation. But future generations began to sin again. Until we come to the New Testament. And y'all... Generational curses, it's a real thing. But if we're going to trace it back, we got to go further than mom and dad. We got to go all the way back. Generational cursing for sin is real in the fact that we have been handed down a curse from generation to generation all the way back from Eden. All the way back from Adam and Eve when man's original sin came into this world, we were all born into sin. But listen to this. Thirdly and finally, the cancellation of generational curses. You don't know why your family can be different. It's not because you're really strong-willed and you can do right by your family. That's not what's going to fix your family. In fact, if you leave with that idea, by Wednesday, you'll be so dadgum frustrated in yourself that you won't know what to do with yourself. You'll be so aggravated and upset because you've tried so hard to do the right thing and you just, you just couldn't do it. You just couldn't do it. That time that kid made you, your son made you so mad, your daughter made you so angry, your wife said that thing and you, and you just got all upset, you acted ungodly. You're going to be so mad at yourself. But what you need to hear from this message is not try harder, boy. It's look to where the answers come. So I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. I don't know what kind of curse or blessing that you're leaving for your kids by the way you're living your life. But I know this, Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to bear the consequence of your curse. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed, is every, cursed be any, everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Guess what, y'all? That's all of us. We are all under a curse because ain't none of us abided by every law of the standard of God. What did Moses show us by breaking the commandments? We all breaking commandments. We're all shattering them into pieces, right? None of us can do that. That's what he says. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Nobody is justified by the law because we're all transgressors of the law. It doesn't mean that you don't keep some portions. It's that you can't keep them all. And because you can't keep them all, you're breaking them all. You're breaking all the law by one one thing that you do wrong. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. That generational curse that proved to us that we could never measure up to God's standard. Jesus died to redeem us. That means to purchase us back from the cost of the law. By becoming the curse for us. Can you just for a moment receive the gravity of that statement? Y'all, I've done a lot of things that deserve a lot of God's cursings in my life. God's judgment, God's wrath has been built, should be built up in this raging inferno of guilt and shame. But what Jesus did on the cross is he took that record of all of Alan's wrongs and he said, you know what? Put it on me. May I become the curse, the consequence for all of Alan's sin, may I bear it in my perfect body 
and in so doing, allow him to experience the blessings of God rather than the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It is not through our actions that is going to generate a hill of beans of redemption in our life. But it is what Jesus did for us in fulfilling the law and the commands and the, the, the standard that stood against me and stood against you for so long. Jesus bore it in his body. When he, all the way back from the curse of Adam, you know what it says? The, that in Adam all die. Everyone dies separated from God in Adam. But in Christ, all are made alive. So you know what? You may not feel very righteous. You may not have a whole lot of righteous pocket change with your family and your friends. But I want you to know at the feet of Jesus, you can be made righteous today. Not because of your activity, not because of all the things that you've done, but because of what Jesus did for you. And you can receive through faith, you can receive his gift of forgiveness and you can have new life with him today. Alan, I don't deserve that. Nope, you sure don't. Neither did I. But it's the truth. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Why can my family be different? Because Jesus died, was buried, and was raised. And in so doing, he offered us a gift. A gift of eternal life through Christ our Lord. Man, you're powerless to change yourself. But Christ can change you today if you would respond in obedience to him. And listen, you may not understand that. You may not understand all the ins and outs and what that looks like and how that's possible. Now, you just don't know what I've done. All I'm going to tell you is it don't matter. Now, you can believe that or not. But there is nothing that is outside of the ability of Christ's blood to forgive you of your sin. There's nothing that you've done. And so if you're here today and you've never received Christ as Lord and Savior, there's never been a time where you have laid down your sins, laid down your life and said, God, I want you to take control in me. I invite you to be the Lord of my life, the shot caller for everything that I do. And I surrender it all to you. If you've never done that, I want you to know that you don't understand what it's like to be made new, but you can today. And so if you're here and you've never, you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd invite you to come today, to make the decision today, to commit your life to Jesus, to follow Him, to be obedient to Him, to put the end to the, to the curse of sin that's been upon your life so that you can end the cycle for the rest of your family you respond to him in obedience scripture says this if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you can be saved salvation is made available to you and right now in the quietness of this moment you can make that decision this second this second as I'm talking while I'm still flapping my gums you can make the decision right now to follow Jesus as Lord in your life would you do that would you just make that decision? God, it's yours. My heart is yours. I surrender it all. I give it up. 
most important decision that you can make. If that's you, I pray that you would do that in this moment. Listen, maybe you're here and maybe you know that you have a relationship with Christ. But man, there's sin in your life and you are living under a curse that Christ died for you to be free from. And maybe the bigness and the ugliness and the perverseness, the, the all-encompassingness of your sin has clouded the fact that Jesus is has become your curse, that he died for the sin that you are presently struggling with. He who's in Christ is free and they are free indeed. So maybe you need to surrender that to Jesus. Maybe you need to get right. Maybe you need to grab your family. Maybe you need to spend some time at this altar or quietly or there in your seats, just praying and laying some things down that have become misplaced priorities. And whatever decision that you need to make, pray that you would respond today. And if you've done that, I pray that you would let somebody know in just a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to say amen and you're going to have an opportunity to respond. Will's going to sing. If you make the, any, of those, any decision today, if the Lord's leading you to make any decision, would you just come? Would you find me? I don't care who's here. I don't care who's looking. Would you come and let us know about what Christ has done in your heart today. Know, let us know about the decision that you've made to follow Jesus and to get right your life with him. That's what this time is for. This altar is open, a place for you to pray. You make your altar your seat. Just do whatever it is the Lord has called you to do in this moment. Father, have your will and way in this invitation. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your covenant love for us. God, may you receive glory in our lives. Pray that you give boldness to people that need to respond to you. They need to let somebody know about the decision they've made to follow you as Lord and Savior. Pray for the one that needs to respond in boldness to get their life right with you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for how you love us enough to continue to work on our hearts. Jesus, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. You can stand to your feet if you would. As we sing, would you come as the Spirit leads?